Good evening, everybody. Welcome to St. Paul's Cathedral and welcome to this um, first in our series of talks about tonight, suffering. Before I introduce our distinguished speakers, may I just say a, a little word about format and how it works. Um, what we're going to do is have two presentations, about 10-15 minutes each from, from both of our speakers. Um, and then afterwards, um, we're going to invite questions from you all. I nearly said you all. I've just come back from the south uh, in, last night. I'm a bit jet-lagged. and I was in Atlanta, and I nearly said questions from y'all. Um, so from the audience, we'll have questions. And what we'd like you to do is to write your questions on the back of a piece of paper and hold them up. And so the stewards will collect them. And through the magic of technology, they will be... Um, communicated to me via this laptop and then I will ask them on your behalf. So please, um, as early as you can, write your questions down. So it would be very nice to have questions for when our speakers finish. Just hold them aloft and they will be collected. Uh, tonight we finish promptly at 8 and we will finish at 8 um, uh, after we've had questions. And uh, afterwards there will be an opportunity um, to go and have a look at the books that both of our speakers have published and if you'd like to buy one there'll be um, signings I think from both of our speakers this evening um, there will also be a retiring collection so when you go um, we will ask uh, if you want to contribute and tonight it's the medical foundation for the victims of torture which Sheila was just talking to me before about how good a charity that is and even before I've introduced you yeah. perhaps you give it a plug yeah the, um, there's an amazing lady called Helen Bamber, who's quite a short lady, and when she was about 18, she went to Auschwitz, or one of the big concentration camps, and she was actually there for the time when people were released. And she went on to become passionate about human rights, and eventually she started the Medical Foundation for the Care of Victims of Torture, which um, uh, treats psychologically, humanly, massage and all the, all the things that people need but when people have been tortured in whatever country by whatever regime um, and it is the most amazing setup and I've always wished I could work there but I know that because of my own experience I wouldn't be able to cope with it but do support them because they are so important. Thank you. Thank you. Um, we know the acoustic in here is tricky and if you have uh, already find that you're in a position of um, uh, difficult to hear, would you uh, perhaps reposition yourself nearer a speaker? Because one of the worst things is to go through the whole evening going, what did they say? What did they say? So if you've got a problem with, with hearing, now is a good time to try and um, get up and sit nearer a speaker. Um, there's, no, there's no problem getting up now. Please do. It's better than not being able to hear. Um, Tonight this um, presentation will be filmed and um, you will be able to see it or point others to it on the St Paul's Cathedral website. So it now gives me great pleasure to introduce uh, our panel. Professor Francis Young is a highly acclaimed academic theologian who combines her knowledge of the New Testament and Christianity in its formative centuries with her experience as a mother of a son living with disability, Arthur. She was head of the Department of Theology and later Pro-Vice-Chancellor of the University of Birmingham. 
She is a Methodist minister and a member of the British Academy. She's worked with Jean Varnier, the founder of the Larche Communities, on the community's theological and ecumenical dimensions, and her books include Face to Face, a narrative essay in the theology of suffering, and Brokenness and Blessing, on the desert spirituality of the early church fathers and mothers, though she tells me that's the only the first chapter. <laughs> Welcome to you. And Dr. Sheila Cassidy is perhaps best known as the young Roman Catholic doctor imprisoned and tortured for treating a wounded revolutionary in Pinochet's Chile. On her release, she became an outspoken advocate for human rights, as well as continuing her work as a doctor, working with the terminally ill, developing new approaches to the care of young cancer patients, and then training as a psychotherapist. Her books include the best-selling Audacity to Believe and Good Friday People, and her recent autobiography, Made for Laughter, in which she tells the story of her capture and release, as well as her struggles to overcome depression. And her new book, which is only two days old, Confessions of a Lapsed Catholic, is also available here tonight at the back. Sheila's going to sit on the table to give her presentation, and I hope she doesn't slip off, because I'm slightly worried about the table, and give us a very practical demonstration of suffering. So, good to see both of you. Very nice to see you. Can you sit there? Yeah, I'll sit yeah. here. Good. Now, it's going to be a bit dodgy, this. If I get my backside well back. Right, well, it is amazing to be here. I never thought that I'd actually talk in St Paul's, and I'm very awed, excited, and no, please. So, what I've been asked to do is to talk in no more than 15 minutes when I normally talk for about an hour and ten, um, about my life story and also a bit about my beliefs in and perhaps relationship with God. So I'll try and do that. And if I just only get as far as medical school, you'll, you'll know that I've gone a bit too slowly. I was born um, in, at Cranwell in Lincolnshire and my father was an RAF officer and he was a rather sort of punctilious Catholic and my mother was a, um, an Anglican who'd become a Catholic when she married my father and she hated the Pope with a deep, you know, hatred. <clears throat> and I was sent, as all good Catholic girls are, to a convent school where, glad to say, the nuns were lovely, they were really nice, they were never cruel to me and I admired them enormously. And we went out to Australia when I was about 10 on a lovely boat. And I went to a big school. And in my last years, my last year I boarded, um, we had what was called a vocation campaign. And at that time, which was in the 50s, it was a time in the Catholic Church when a great many young men and women um, were entering the religious life and the priesthood, very, very different from now. But there would be something like 10 or 15 girls from a class would try their vocations to be a nun. And with all my friends, I had mocked the girls that we thought were going to be nuns, and they had to bring a year's supply of sanitary towels. It was all too humiliating for words. And we had this three-day uh, retreat, and to my horror, I discovered that I had a feeling that maybe I was being called 
to religious life. And I cannot tell you how utterly miserable it made me because um, I had already decided that I wanted to be a doctor. I'd read a lot of A.J. Cronin and I'd, read, I'd fallen in love with the family doctor. I think the, the whole story of my spiritual life is really about falling in love with gorgeous men. Um, but anyway, um, I, I went on from school to the university, again to a Catholic college, run initially by a, a lovely sort of very... Um, what's the word, genteel elderly nun. And then the next year, there was this incredibly bossy, full of personality type nun who'd been a barrister and had entered in full evening dress at midnight. And she was absolutely convinced that I had to be a nun and I was completely furious. But anyway, the long and the short of it is that I absolutely adored medical school. I loved it. And I went to mass every day and I dreaded the thought that I might have to give it all up. And it never occurred to me really that I was being called to be a missionary or go to some foreign country and look after sick people. I just didn't think about that. Anyway, we came back from Australia in about 1958, I think it would have been. And my father, who um, had a girlfriend who was um, the sister of the bursar of Somerville College, she got me in. And so I started at Oxford without having taken any exams and I'm sure I would never have got in um, if I hadn't done that. And so I went through medical school. I had another bad attack of the vocationitis, um, but it, you know, I got over it, and I went through clinical school, and it was absolutely wonderful, and I adored it. And I think the one thing that I know about myself is that I'm a doctor born and bred, that I have a massive calling to do medicine, as well as an insatiable curiosity. And then I went to work, I worked initially in the medical and surgical things and then I worked in accident and emergency, which I absolutely loved because I do like a bit of drama with my medicine. And I always watch casualty every night, and not every night, every Saturday night. And the next thing that happened that really influenced me was that when I was working in the plastic surgery department, by the time I was about 25 or something like that, I became friends with a Chilean doctor who was a plastic surgeon. And Consuelo was all of the things that I wasn't. She was an atheist, she was an ex-communist, she was an alcoholic, and she was very, very clever but also she was utterly passionate about the poor people of her own country. And I expect most of you know that in the Latin American countries there is this massive gulf between the rich and the poor in a way that we don't experience it, however bad it is here. And in Chile then, most of the wealth of the country was in um, the hands of about 5% of the people and the rest of the... No, was, was the poor. And I remember what I learned when I was in Chile, when I was doing my public health lessons, was that 11, I think it was 11%, if not 25% of the people had no lavatory whatsoever, not even a portaloo. Um, so Consuelo and I were very good friends, and we moved to Leicester and we worked there, and she introduced me to chow dogs, which um, I still keep. And then in 1972, she decided to go back to Chile and off she went um, flying with two of our dogs and 
For a long time, I didn't know what I was going to do, and I decided that I would go too, because particularly one of the things she told me was that in Chile, because there were maids, women were much more liberated to do, um, to, you know, to be in the professions. Because if you've got a maid to look after your kids and clean the house, then you can be a surgeon or whatever. Just have some of this. So I went out to Chile in 1970, end of 1971, and the first year I spoke no Spanish and I was utterly miserable. And then the next year, <clears throat> the military coup happened. Those of you who are as old as me, which is in the 70s, um, you're supposed to say, oh, no, <laughs> but you have failed me, yeah. <laughs> However, um, there was a military coup in September the 11th, 1973, by which I mean that the military... Um, the Air Force, the Navy, and the police took over a democratically elected government which was trying to redistribute the wealth between the poor and the richer people. And I, I had never been a political person. Up until that time, I had never even voted. And it was very difficult to understand it because my Spanish was pretty crap. Um, and I didn't understand what they said on the radio. But anyway, the military came into power. There was a massive curfew. We heard a big um, helicopter circling around the city at night without any lights. And I heard from the local chemist that there were something like 600 or 1,000 people imprisoned in one of the big sports stadiums. And little by little, the information leaked out that people were being tortured, that people were being killed. And just to give you an example of the kind of people who, to whom this was happening, there was a, a lovely singer called Victor Hara, who was a man of, of the poorer classes who had become a tremendous guitarist and singer, and he used to sing wonderful protest songs. Um, and I should think you could probably get his music even now. It's very, very beautiful. Um, and Victor Hara was taken prisoner and they beat him up and they deliberately broke his wrists so that he would never again play the guitar and he was tortured and in a few days they killed him and his wife who was English was allowed to take his body from the morgue in Santiago and she writes in a book called Victor that she went in and there were piles and piles of bodies in the morgue, piled on top of each other, hundreds of dead bodies. So, in March, that's the, the, the coup was in September 73. In March 74, Consuelo died of the drink. She had been drinking very heavily while I was in Chile, and she got cirrhosis and she died the way people do. It's a lovely guy called Dougie, who I see on Plymouth Hoe, um, who's an alcoholic, and I saw him this morning, and he's got the big swollen belly that's sort of the beginning of the end. So Consuelo died, and I was deeply saddened, but it was the beginning of a new part of my life in that I was no longer helping to look after a very sick addict. But I met up with the American 
missionary priests and nuns. And I saw, I met a religion that I had never known existed. I met a Catholicism which was quite new to me. And instead of being sort of church-based, this was men and women who lived with the poor in the shanty towns, who shared their food with them, who didn't wear a habit, they just wore jeans. And I remember going out to supper one night and being sent to get a chair from one of the priest's rooms. And in his room there was a bed and a table and there was a Bible and there was a shirt and a pair of jeans hanging on a nail behind the door. And I, I'm a shopaholic. I love things, beautiful things, and I love endless clothes. And if I can't buy them, I make them. Um, and so these, meeting these people who were on fire with love for the poor and who were prepared to risk their lives for those who were in hiding from the military was a very amazing experience. And I went back to England for a bit, but then I came back because I wanted to throw in my lot with the missionary people. And one night when I was working in the emergency hospital, I was called to see a young man with massive bullet holes, machine gun bullet holes in his body, and he was lying there naked. He was 17 um, and had seven bloody great machine gun holes in his body. And in another room there was a lad weeping, I've killed a man, I've killed a man. And that was the young soldier who shot him. And I was so moved by this and so angered that I decided to contact the young man's parish priest so that at least his mother would know that her lad was dead, not just disappeared. Because one of the worst things, there were about 2,000 people disappeared in Chile. Some were dropped um, with their hands tied in barbed wire from helicopters into the sea. Some were buried in mass graves. Some were shot. Um, all, no, all manner of hideous deaths. And so I met up with the parish priest who was a, a, a Jesuit. And we became friends. And I didn't see much of him. And one day he rang me and said, could I come and treat someone who was on the run? So I said, yes, of course. And so I went with him, and there in the house of some American missionary sisters was a young man called Nelson Gutierrez, who was a very far-left um, terrorist, if you like, freedom fighter, there's always the saying that one man's terrorist, another man's freedom fighter. Um, and he'd been with a little group out in the suburbs, and one had been shot dead, and the others had been taken prisoner. And Gutierrez had a bullet in his leg, and I said, yes, I would try to take it out. But I suggested that he went into uh, asylum, because I told him he could get you know, a, a terrible septicemia and maybe betray his friends. So he went into the house of the papal nuncio, which was like an ambassador, um, no, like an embassy where he was safe. And I went to treat him, but in fact they had someone else. And then a few days later, I was in the house of some other religious friends, the Columban fathers, some Irish missionaries, and suddenly there was a tremendous shot and a scream. And I rushed downstairs, and the maid of the house was lying on the floor with an enormous bullet hole in her back. And Father Bill Halliden, who was the priest in charge of that, 
Oh, I've almost gone. Can I have another few minutes? Go on. Okay. It's really hard to talk about this solely. Anyway, the guys came in, they shot the maid, they arrested me, they took me away, and I was tortured off and on throughout one night because they wanted to know um, basically where Gutierrez and people, and they wanted to know the names of the priests who'd looked after him. So I was stripped naked, tied to a bunk, and tortured with electric shocks, some on my limbs, some in my vagina, and believe me, it was very nasty. And I held on to the information for as long as I could, and then I told them what I could. I spent three days at the torture center. I spent three weeks in solitary confinement where I battled with God between praying to be let out and praying to do what God wanted. And there was a real sort of sense of an act of abandonment then saying, okay, grant that I may love thee always, then do with me what thou wilt. So I then spent five weeks with a hundred or so other women, amazing young left-wing women. I came back to England. I did a lot of human rights stuff. I went at Ampleforth Abbey, I went into a convent where I was more miserable than I have ever been. I came back to medicine and then I started work at the hospice where the dying people are. And I loved the work, but I suffered very badly from depression for about 10 years. Um, lots of therapy and then the antidepressants and that worked. And I worked for 10 years at the hospital. Um, starting all manner of new ventures, group programs with young women with breast cancer. When I left, I got breast cancer myself. And then for the last eight years, I've been retired, and it's wonderful. And I write books, and I go to painting classes, and I sit by the sea with my dogs and communicate with the divine. And I have dinner parties, and I have a ball. And that's about it. And that do, I haven't given them any theology. We'll do theology in question, shall we? Yes. I could go on another half hour. <laughs> i tell you what, we'll, we'll do theology in questions. Thank you very much indeed. That's okay. fantastic. Sorry I went on too long. <clears throat> Thank you so much. Can you get round the front? Our ages match. Oh. Um, I was going to say that uh, I have got a few pieces of paper here because I knew that if I didn't, I would go on all night. So I hope I shall keep to the time that was suggested. A professorial colleague of mine of Jewish descent once said in my hearing, if I were God, I wouldn't let my children do to each other the things they do. We've just heard an example of the sort of thing people do, which raises the problem of moral evil and suffering caused by other human beings, or indeed by ourselves. 
To some extent, the free will defense can alleviate this problem. God permits people to make their own moral choices. God doesn't coerce. Philosophically, however, there are still problems about where temptation to sin and evil comes from. If God is creator and God is good and the devil doesn't help, who tempted the devil? You end up with an infinite regress. So that's one set of problems. But there's another sometimes called the problem of natural evil. Epidemics, tsunamis, earthquakes, hurricanes, natural disasters. If God is a good God, why is the world the way it is? Why pain? Why illness? Why loss? The Lisbon earthquake in 1755 has often been regarded as the moment when the problem of theodicy, as we call it, came to dominate people's thinking. How do you justify the ways of God to people who question these things? Suffering became the chief reason why people in the modern world abandon belief in God. But paradoxically, the experience of suffering is often also the reason why people turn to religion. We need to explore these ambiguities. So let me tell you my story. I grew up as the daughter of Methodist lay preachers and the granddaughter of Methodist ministers. So I was a bit dyed in the wool. I wandered round St. Paul's churchyard earlier this afternoon and came face to face with that wonderful statue of John Wesley and felt deeply attached to my roots. I felt a call to read theology at university without having any idea at all where it could lead since women couldn't then be ordained. And I eventually found myself married to a university lecturer in physics and teaching theology at university. But meanwhile, our firstborn son had arrived. A full-term baby, but with premature weight. Deprived of nourishment and oxygen in the womb in the latter stages of pregnancy, from placental insufficiency and this led to an abnormally small head and serious underdevelopment of his brain. 43 years later we are still caring for him. He has no self-help skills. I should at this moment be feeding him. He has no independent mobility, he has no language, and is totally dependent. We've been changing nappies for 43 years. I suppose, roughly speaking, he has a mental age of about 13 or 14 months, but development is distinctly uneven. So you could call this a natural disaster on a small but very personal scale. Now my question for years 
was, how could I go on believing in a good creator if something can go so wrong in the creation of a new human being? How could I go on believing that life has a moral purpose when there are those born apparently incapable of moral development? Needless to say, I've been on a long pilgrimage over those 40 years, most of them teaching theology. To begin with, despite my struggles with faith, latterly as an ordained minister in the Methodist Church, so how do I make sense of it all? Let me say at the outset that I don't think there is a simple knockdown answer to the problem of theodicy at the philosophical level. But I do think Christianity offers a quite different tack on it. I would say that I have moved from struggling with those theodicy questions to finding my experience with Arthur has given me privileged access to the deepest truths of Christianity. The first breakthrough came when pondering the story of the healing of the blind man in chapter 9 of St. John's Gospel. The disciples asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? I'd been told just before that the driver of a minibus picking up my son and children like him for a Mencap playgroup once asked, what on earth have the parents done to have children like this? People still jump to such conclusions, and many parents struggle with guilt. But Jesus' reply was, neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. Well, I'm sorry, but that made me profoundly angry. Why should he suffer all those years blind just so that Jesus could wave a magic wand and heal him? But not for nothing did I read this gospel regularly in Greek with students. I began to see this in the context of the gospel narrative as a whole. In this gospel, the hour of glory is the cross, the hour of Glory is the cross. From the beginning, we've been hearing about the light shining in the darkness. And every now and again, Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. And it's only as we work on through to the passion narrative that we begin to hear that the hour of glory is there. By the end, what we see is Christ entering the depths of the darkness and all the gone wrongness of things, God in Christ taking responsibility for all our sin and suffering and transforming it. Here is no magic wand, but a costly identification with us 
And the story of the blind man is there as a sign pointing to the deeper truth of what Christ has done. What Christianity offers is not a philosophical theory explaining the why of suffering and evil, a theodicy, but a God engaged with it, a God prepared to enter and bear it on behalf of all, an atonement whereby God has sorted it. Now, a good many years later, I was invited to go to Lourdes on the Faith and Light pilgrimage. Faith and Light is a sister organization to the L'Arche communities, of which you may have heard, both founded by Jean Vanier, where people commit themselves to living in community or befriending those who have learning disabilities and their families. I was invited to go and do a talk for parents on Holy Saturday. It was over Holy Week and Easter. I had huge misgivings. I was very nervous about the reputation of Lord for miracles because I had come to believe very deep down that acceptance was the proper and appropriate response to the kind of situation I was in. I was also pretty nervous about the Roman Catholic ethos, however ecumenical I'd been over the years, and particularly worried that I wouldn't be in a position to have Easter communion. However, there was a solution. I was invited to preach at an Anglican Eucharist in the Roman Catholic Upper Basilica. So there you are, it was ecumenical after all. But this visit to Lourdes was a transforming experience in all kinds of ways. I will just simply, to start with at any rate, share the experience on Good Friday afternoon because it was one of living that insight into John's Gospel. I found myself alone following the stations of the cross in my own inimitable way. Um, Methodists don't usually have stations of the cross. But these were um, tableaus, life-size, which were positioned all the way up a little foothill of the Pyrenees, and you literally had to struggle up the path from one of these stations to the next. And I came to the point where I met with Mary and I relived an experience from some years before when I had gone with my son to the local convent for a carol service. And for the first time in my life, I had been at the foot of a huge statue of Mary. And by the time I'd got home, this poem had been given to me. Mary my child's lovely, is yours lovely too? Little hands, little feet, curly hair, smiles sweet. Mary, my child's broken, is yours broken too? Crushed by affliction, hurt by rejection, disfigured, stricken, silent submission. Mary, my heart's bursting, is yours bursting too? Bursting with labor, travail, and pain. Bursting with agony, ecstasy, gain. Bursting with sympathy, anger, compassion. 
bursting with praising love's transfiguration. Mary, my heart's joyful. Is yours joyful too? And then I went on, and I came to another tableau, which was the women of Jerusalem bringing their children to Jesus as he carried his cross. And I found myself identifying with them and begging a blessing. And eventually I reached the top of the hill, and there were the three crosses And the afternoon sun was going down behind so that you simply couldn't look at the crosses until somehow I lined up the cross of Christ against the sun and all I could see was this dark silhouette. And it was as though I was seeing that message of John's Gospel. Jesus entering the darkness of our experience and transforming it into glorious light. Seeing the cross as the centerpiece of Christianity's answer was only the beginning. Maybe some of the other things will come out in response to questions as the evening goes on. I have to say that I feel um, privileged to have been here and to have listened to both of you this evening. Thank you very much indeed. Um, what I'd quite like to ask both of you, just to um, speak some more about, and Sheila, if I could ask you first, is um, given all of this, um, how did you keep on believing? Or did you and didn't you? And Could you tell me something about how that experience um, uh, was worked through with your faith? I think I'm very lucky. I have a very simple faith to do with to do with the unseen God rather than to do with Jesus. And I've never never not believed. I've been pissed off with the church on various occasions but um, I've always believed in God so I didn't have any great heroic battles I've had battles over other things but not that right, that's very interesting because a lot of people would have mm, expected sure. you I guess to, to have some great heroic battle and so forth, why do you think you, you managed to avoid that? I think I'm a very simple soul with some kind of intuitive, carnal knowledge of God. Um, so I, I just never didn't believe. As I say, I've, I've gone through periods of, of not going to church, but it's just, I've, it seems to me to so self-evident. And sorry, just to, just to ask you one more, you spoke about depression. And um, insomnia, I see, which is something I have as well. Yes, yes. It's terrible. Um, is there any way that they may be connected or, or, I mean, in terms of, I mean, you may, I might speak of a loss of faith, but some people might experience a loss of faith in terms of, you know, the black dog, in terms of some sense of depression, which... 
for me, it's never been like that. I mean, I've had the most monumental de uh, depression with a lot of suicidal thoughts, um, and I've had very, very severe insomnia, often on over about 10 years. And really, it was only when I had the chemical treatment that it stopped. I mean, I would have been, normally have been awake the whole night, if not two nights before, a thing like this would be absolutely a gibbering wreck. Um, I've, I've, I've never not believed in a higher power. C can I ask you whether your experience has been the same as that? Not at all, <laughs> as I indicated. Um, so how do you keep I on think, believing? I think um, uh, my story is very different in that um, I grew up in a setting where um, it was almost inevitable that you believed um, I found the experience of reading theology a very profound challenge because all sorts of questions were raised at all kinds of levels. But even more than that was the experience of meeting and eventually marrying a scientist who did not share my faith. And I had never, ever imagined I could marry someone who did not share my faith, since it was somehow deeply part of me. And then, um, for our first child um, to be born with such profound disability, Though, of course, at that stage, we simply didn't know how bad it was. <laughs> and it's just as well um, that you don't know. I mean, the question you keep asking the doctors is, you know, <laughs> what's the future? And they can't tell you. And it's just as well they can't. Um, and um, it, that, was, that was a tremendously profound challenge because the kinds of answers I thought I could give to the problem of suffering didn't work anymore. And, um, I, and so it was partly a head thing, but it was also coping with the anguish and the anger um, at what had happened because every parent... Um, imagines their child is going to be wonderful. And this was our first baby. Um, we have had two others since who are wonderful, and so is Arthur. But it takes a substantial amount of adjustment at an emotional level and at, an, at other levels. Um, and, of course, there's a level at which you respond with with love and a sense that this baby's going to need me all his life and you actually feel good about that. But, but then there's the other side, which is so much more difficult to feel good about. And the uncertainty, and, and it's been a long, long process of, of growing. Here we are still, 43 years later. So... I did find it a very, very profound challenge. And um, I started to say some of the ways in which I've found some way back. Um, perhaps I could throw in one other. Um, it seems to me that one of the most wonderful verses in the New Testament is in the Epistle of the Galatians where Paul speaks of the fruits of the Spirit love, 
joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, self-control, and I guess another one which has slipped my mind. But you see, those are the values which I find with Arthur and with people with learning disabilities far more profoundly than with any of the clever people at the university. Our society is dominated by success values and actually there are much, much deeper values which are of far more importance than achievement and success and all the rest of it. Perhaps I should shut up at that point. Oh no, you could go on forever on that. That's very interesting. <clears throat> I wonder if I could chuck in an, another one um, to you both. And this is something that comes out of my um, experience. When I was um, a fairly newly ordained, um, I worked uh, as a parish priest in a pretty rough parish in the black country um, in, uh, in Walsall. And um, I remember one day I did a, a funeral. I think it must have been the first funeral I ever did of a child. And I remember very distinctly the funeral. I remember the, very distinctly the coffin. And I remembered very distinctly the mum who had... Usually the funeral of a child, there's lots of people there. And there was just three or four people there. And mum had written the name of the baby with a knife on her arm beforehand. And she was bleeding when she came in. It was, it was absolutely awful. And... Um, for a while afterwards, um, I would say that I'd lost my faith after that experience. But I was the priest. <laughs> and uh, I have a job to do. So on Sunday morning, I would get up and I would celebrate the Eucharist and um, uh, say the words. And um, it really wasn't available for me to say, terribly sorry, I'm not doing this stuff this morning because I just don't fancy it. So I sort of felt like I celebrated the Eucharist as an atheist at a number of points. Um, and when I look back on that experience, um, I've always been terribly... Um, and it came back into focus, and uh, I, you know, how that happened is perhaps, perhaps not for me to say. Um, but when I reflected on that experience, I was, I was um, very supported by the idea that with a congregation we say we believe in God the Father Almighty and it was as if the belief of the congregation was carrying me at that point now the reason I say it all like this is the reason I'm keener on the institution um, and institutional stuff for all its you know, frustrations and so forth is that um, the togetherness of, of people as a church for me was so much more um, uh, helped me than I could have done on my own. On my own, I think I might have not been able to do it. But the idea that there was a we, that believing almost at that point was a corporate activity of which I placed myself in the midst of. I wonder if there's any sense of, of, of how the, the I dealing with it and how the we helped and so forth. You probably need to put that a bit closer oh, on. It's, it's hanging slightly precariously. How's that? I'm sure that's fine. Okay. Yeah. I, I have a great sense of community in a number of different ways. I think you're talking about a sense of community, aren't you? And my community has always been the hospital. It was the hospice for a bit, but it was mainly the hospital and the people with whom I was working. Um, now that I'm retired, there are the people I have met around the world um, 
it's, it's never been my local parish church. Because I've been abroad a lot, um, staying the night with people like yourself or other, a lot of Anglicans, I have people like that, people who are sort of guiding lights for me in different places. And it's the knowledge of that community which keeps me going. And I think when I get really angry with Catholicism, which I do from time to time, um, in the second breath, I say, oh, but think of Michael, think of Jerry, think of Simon, you know, all, all the people, Michael, Father Michael Hollings, who died. Now I'm getting so ill that nearly everybody's died. But um, if it's good enough for them, it's good enough for me. So that, that community works for me. I think this also is one of the really important things. I mean, I would say that for about 15 years, I kept going to church, but I didn't really believe very much. And I think it was just actually sitting amongst people who did, um, which enabled a kind of hanging on in there. And somehow I, I couldn't actually let go of the whole thing. And that wasn't just because I was a professional theologian. There are plenty of people teaching theology in universities who have lost their faith. And um, there are, however, I think certain key things I can point to. And very often, they were experiences of community which weren't the local church, but rather special communities. Um, I, I was asked to go and be the speaker at a group called the Athona Community, um, and they have summer camps um, over at one of the oldest places of Christian worship in England, in Essex. And... Uh, the first time I went, uh, Arthur was about 19, and I was beginning to come back to some kind of sense of, of faith. Um, and the people in the community would, would help get his wheelchair round a ploughed field, morning and evening, to this wonderful old stone chapel. Um, and there we would... Uh, have prayers and on one the community was founded for reconciliation immediately after the second world war and one evening the, there was a German pastor leader figure uh, who was taking prayers and he said I had intended that we should spend this period in silence but we can't have silence with Arthur you see I must explain if he's in a place like this with an echo, he will shout and get more and more and more excited. And here we were in this stone chapel. So he said, we will create silence by singing psalms because Arthur loves music and he will just listen to music. And we got to, Athona like Iona and elsewhere has its own ways of singing psalms. And we got to this one, uh, simple song, I am too little, Lord, to look down on others. I've not chased great affairs nor matters beyond me. 
My soul's a new-fed babe at rest on the breast. My brothers seek the Lord both now and forever. And as we sang that, it seemed as though Arthur was the Christ figure in the midst of the community. And I began to see that actually it is vitally important for the church to incorporate people with disabilities, with impairments of all kinds, because unless all kinds of people are represented within the body of Christ, then we are not the body of Christ who entered into all the sin and the suffering of the world and redeemed it for us. Thank you. I mean, I'd quite like to ask you um, both uh, something about the way in which we respond, and many people respond to suffering with a sense of blame and the need to blame. And in fact, I'd quite like, if I may, just to come back to you, because uh, very naughtily, um, uh, I've recalled um, a quote from Wesley um, about the Lisbon earthquake, which, which you actually mentioned in your talk. Um, uh, and he blamed the Lisbon earthquake, Charles Wesley, uh, on papists. And, on, and uh, the quote is... Jesus, this was uh, what Wesley said of the Lisbon earthquake in which 30 to 40,000 people died. Wesley said, Jesus descends in dread array to judge the scarlet whore. That was his response to the, to the Lisbon earthquake. Um, Jesus descends in dread array to judge the scarlet whore. Is the scarlet whore Catholicism? Yes. Oh, lovely. So... <laughs> Um, there's more where that came from, as, 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 as you know. Um, I, I, I'm sorry, that was unfair. But um, I did want to, um, to sort of pose the question of the way in which uh, we readily reach for blame um, in term, in, when we have our experience of suffering. Yeah, well, in my case, it, the only person to blame was God, wasn't it? So that's a rather different kind of situation. Um, I think um, there are situations where it is quite clear that responsibility needs to be attributed. But on, I would say that in our society at the moment, there is a, a disease of looking to blame somebody for everything. And that actually, one of the things we need to come to terms with is the fact that life is a mixed bag and many things are deeply ambiguous. I came across the fact the other day that um, life began in deep vents under the ocean, which are precisely the site of volcanic activity which causes tsunamis. It's also true that people live under volcanoes because that's some of the most fertile soil there is in the world. And so often uh, things are ambiguous. Fire, for example. Fire can be deeply damaging, but we all need fire for power for all kinds of everyday activities. And it seems to me that there there are ways in which 
we do live in a world which is ambiguous and accident-prone. And we also live in a world where everybody's going to die at some point. And it does seem to me that we have, in society in general, tended to lose sight of the fact that, that life is a kind of risk and um, that we're all vulnerable. And actually, we shouldn't be suing the council when we trip over the paving stone. We should be taking responsibility for our own action. Um, so I would say yes and no to, to this, that we need to actually address why we are so quick to blame rather than looking for the positive ways of dealing with a situation. I'd like to come back on a different tack and say I think that it is extremely natural to want to blame something and I think that as a scientist I'm always wanting to know why something happens and in particular, I mean in my own uh, world of psychotherapy, I want to know why people do bad things, why a man beats up his wife, why some people are narcissistic and talk about themselves without ceasing. And you can nearly always go back and find a reason. And finding a reason is not the same as blame. And you might say that the cutting down the Amazon it has a major cause in uh, the changes of our weather and all these things. And I think that it can be too pious to say we shouldn't blame people. I think you want to know what the hell is going on. And when there's, when you, there's absolutely no reason, then, and in particular with the different cancers, you know, why me? The answer for some people is, well, you smoked, mate. I'm so sorry. I mean, my friend Consuelo died an untimely death because she drank. Why did she drink? Childhood stuff, God knows. So it's all a great, exciting mystery. So I would be wary to say don't blame. Thank you. I've got a whole lot of questions. I've got lots of questions that are coming through on my laptop from people in, um, in the audience. Um, perhaps I can um, start with start with this one. Um, the question is, can suffering ever be good for us? Um, I, once I think it was once described um, as a particular soul-making theodicy uh, that, um, that the world is a bit like someone, someone described it as a cosmic Gordonston, um, where uh, I, I once said that on Thought for the Day and I got a very rude letter from the headmaster of Gordonston. Um, <laughs> Uh, to say, well, it wasn't that rude, it was just, um, he, he wasn't happy. Um, the, the, the idea that somehow, that through suffering, you're somehow ennobled and, and so forth. I wonder if you might respond to... Um, Can I do that? Yes. I think suffering experiences, whether it be death or cancer or a road accident, is like a module of a university because hideous though it may be, you learn so much and that then equips you to understand what's happening to other people. There is this amazing word empathy, which is the ability to enter the other's world as if it were your own, but without losing the as if quality. And if you can enter the other's world um, 
when, when people are suffering or when people have been tortured, then you're not going to say the wrong thing. You're probably going to shut up and listen. And I think that empathy is the great skill that we all need to, in our relationships and in our, um, and in our professions. And very often we get that through experience of that. I mean, my dog died a month ago and never have I been so sad. I was sadder than when my brother and sister died. You'll think I'm completely nuts, but I'm not because the dog was there. I loved her, she loved me. And so it was a real experience of recurring pain, sadness, endlessly bursting into tears. But now I am that much wiser about grief. But before I come to you, can I just have a supplementary on that one? Mm. Because um, th th there may be... I'm, I'm sure that is some people's experience, the way in which you can, you can sort of grow through an experience of suffering and, mm. and somehow be bigger for it yeah. when you come out the other end. But isn't there also a sort of suffering that actually just destroys us? Oh, yeah. And you see some people who are not... Um, made better people from suffering, but actually made worse people from but suffering. But that's what the professionals need to do. I mean, when you're in a hospice, uh, your job is to help people, along, no, to walk alongside people in their suffering to stop them from becoming bitter, one hopes. And it's the same in psychotherapy. You're, you're helping people to deal with the horrendous drama in their lives. I have a, a young man who has an unexpected cancer and the being alongside him is to try to help him to grow through it and difficult it is. I guess theologians, don't they call it dysteleological suffering? <laughs> yes, um, but I think that is, that is a hugely difficult problem but it leads into something which I think we do need to think about. Um, the question of judgment, which you were challenging me with and quoting Charles Wesley, I should say also that the Wesleys uh, did hold out the hand of fellowship to anybody who believed no matter, and they did live in a time when uh, anti-papists were rife in this country and we're all affected by the times we live in. But what I wanted to say was that in the New Testament, the word that we often translate judgment is also the word which is behind our word crisis. And what happens in a crisis is that the way people react shows up what they're really made of. And so... I think some of what the New Testament is saying is that the way in which people respond is a way in which they are almost judging themselves or they're being shown up for what they really are. And if I could give an example, um, I think in general there has been a pretty considerable change of attitude in our society, but the way in which people with learning disabilities have been treated in most societies, in most of the history of the world, is 
is a pretty bad show. In other words, the way in which people react to people who are different is a kind of judgment process going on which divides those who are responsive from those who uh, are completely the other way. I mean, did you know that the Holocaust was not just Jews, it was people with disabilities as well, not to mention the gypsies. I mean, there is something very deep-seated in human nature which finds people who are different very hard to cope with. And uh, yes, our society has moved a long way but there are ways, I think, in which suffering can actually be the kind of crisis which shows up what you're made of. I would also, from that point, move on and say, I once heard a musician say that the reason why Mendelssohn's music wasn't as deep as some other composers was that he never suffered. Now, uh, this may seem a bit hard, but it does seem to me that the greatest literature, the greatest drama, the greatest music has often been uh, concerned with tragedy and with our mortality and with our sin, the faults that end up... Uh, producing consequences which perhaps were never intended. These are the sorts of things which are explored in tragic literature and in some of the greatest music that's ever been written. So I think the place of suffering in our lives is a very complex and ambiguous thing. Yes, we'd all uh, like to be comfortable and not have to face it, but actually it can bring out the best in us. Thank you. Um, I have a question here that I'd just like to read verbatim. You've both had very heavy crosses to bear, but have been able to. What can you say to others who can't bear theirs? Dietrich Bonhoeffer who was um, a Lutheran minister, part of the people planning to overthrow Hitler, wrote, I believe that God will give, me, will, will give us the power, we, the strength we need to cope with whatever he sends us, but he will not give it in advance unless, um, lest we take him for granted. And so I think people cope in different ways and I, I take slight issue with the, the notion of what we really are because I think we're all a composite of our genes and our childhood and our experience and we go on changing and changing all the time so we're all in a state, always in a state of growth and I, I have seen very few, I don't think I've seen anyone who doesn't cope. I've seen people who've had enormous difficulty. The daughter of the woman in the block of flats opposite where I lived hung herself about 
two months ago. And that woman is having enormous difficulty coping and we're trying to help her as best we can. So crying and becoming depressed is not not coping, it's just the way you do it. Yes, I think my response to the question was, what do you mean by not coping? Um, because, um, well, I, I think most people keep going. Um, they find somehow um, ways to continue um, And I think everybody, in a way, has to find their own way. But I do want to underline what was said earlier about empathy. Um, that if there are people around um, who will share the burden, um, who will allow you to um, give vent to your anger and not simply give um, answers that nowhere near meet the question um, but sort of hold you as it were through the dark periods it, it does make a difference can I, can I just press you on that I know it's, it's tough really I'm, I feel that I wouldn't have been able to cope had I experienced what you had experienced. I feel somehow I would have given up or, or I don't know and maybe there's other people in the, uh, in the audience this evening who f feel the same way. And that business about, what, what do you think gave you the strength or was it just one day at a time, one foot in front of another? Uh, I think one thing you do learn is um, to live for the present because you don't know what the future holds. Um, though I've had, re I still occasionally have blind panics about the future because my husband's 75 and I've turned the three score years and ten and how much longer can we go on caring and what happens to him when we can't anymore? Um, I mean, those questions are there in the background. Um, and then... I have to say to myself, well, uh, everything's worked out so far. I couldn't have imagined being in this situation 43 years ago when we started. Um, and and you, just, you just work through it somehow. Um, of course, it is well known that people who have this kind of thing happen in the family are more likely to end up in broken marriages. I happen to have the most wonderful, faithful, extraordinary husband who has entirely supported my career um, as well as his own until he eventually decided to take early retirement and become Arthur's principal carer. Um, that is an, a testimony I have to give. And I also have to say that I think he found it a lot easier than I did because he didn't believe in God. 
Um, he could just accept it as one of those things that happen and you have to just get on. And, and he, in the early years, he was the absolute rock in the family where I was uh, um, emotionally um, but quite fragile. Thank you. Is there anything you want to... Yeah, I, th I think... It, it depends very much what hideous thing happens to different kinds of people. Some people who have a severely handicapped child have enormous difficulty coping with that child, and so they have respite or they, the child is looked after in a home. And I think it's really important that people are not made to feel guilty if they are not able to cope you know, to look, look after their own relatives. I mean, my brother died in February, and he was such a difficult man. He was a lovely man, but he was very difficult. And it was so, so hard to look after him, and eventually he was in a very good nursing home. But, as I say, it's different people have different gifts, and... Jean Vanier, who is a very good friend of mine, um, runs these amazing homes where people with all kinds of disability are looked after, from people who lie and look blank and do nothing else to other people who bumble about and things. And one of the things that happens with suffering is that it draws out the best in those who feel the need to care. If you think of the nurses who look after people with Alzheimer's, um, if you think of the nurses, very often men, who look after brain-damaged young men. At the place where I go for coffee every morning, there's uh, a lad who was in a bad car accident, and there's always a couple of blokes looking after him. That brings out such goodness out of ordinary people that they become really special. Okay. Um, I'm going to be pious for a moment in terms of um, asking you questions. I want to ask you a question about prayer. And um, um, it's always struck me that uh, one of the forms of prayer that particularly Anglicans don't use or get is the one that the Bible calls lamentation, which I always think is, it's a form of prayer, and for me it's, you know, roughly translated as crying. Um, does, does it ring any bells with you to speak as crying as a form of prayer? Absolutely. I was once teaching a class of um, pastors from black churches in this country, um, and uh, some people from mainstream churches um, and it was a class on the Old Testament and we got to the book of Job and one of these black pastors rather piously uh, but rather fearfully said um, do you think Job was blaspheming <laughs> and my response was um, it's more blasphemous to be dishonest before God and what you find in Job and in many of the Psalms is the deep, heartfelt honesty of people who can't understand why the wicked prosper. 
and why the good suffer and all the other questions, the age-old questions which have echoed down the centuries. Um, and it, it does seem to me that being honest before God is really absolutely fundamental. And um, so, yes, um, we need to express that, that anger and that anguish and that doubt and that questioning. Um, and yet to do that somehow in a context where it's taken up and, um, and somehow out of the very articulation of it, there begins to be a sense of, of a bigger perspective which may be beyond our understanding but which can bring a kind of, of peace and courage and hope and faith. There's a guy called Cyril of Alexandria who I'm sure is an old friend of Francis um, who said prayer is keeping company with God. And then there was another Benedictine monk who said, pray as you can and not as you can't. Um, and I think prayer is many, many things. Prayer is adverting to the presence of God. God is here, God is everywhere. Um, the God that I believe in. So most of the time I don't talk to God, but I sit by the sea and and kind of sit with him or her by the sea and little bits of poetry and psalms come into my mind when I was grieving for my lovely black chow the, 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 the quote from Isaiah all, all flesh is grass and its beauty like the wild flowers. The wind blows and it is gone and its place never sees it again. It came through my mind again and again and again. And the wild flowers are the poppies in the park where I walk the dogs. And it was just so, such a powerful thing. So sometimes you kind of take a, a ride on a, on a psalm or a bit of scripture and sometimes you say, could you find me a parking space? You can do it, you can do it, for God's sake, get me a parking space. I mean, most of my verbal prayers are about parking spaces. <laughs> most of my silent prayers. Oh, they do. Oh, yes, they do. Oh, yes, they do. Um, <laughs> sorry, I just said it. I don't drive, I don't know. Well, there you go, yeah. Very good. Um... I wonder if uh, the, the last question I'd like to, to ask you about opens up a whole, a whole new world. After I've asked you this question, I think I might just give you a couple of minutes just to, to sort of like perhaps to say something at the end if you'd like to. But the, 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 thing, the last question I'd like to ask um, is about forgiveness. Um, and uh, I suppose that relates to both of your experiences in different ways. But I wonder how, how that is... Um, I, I'm, interested in that um, vicar who a number of years ago whose, whose daughter was killed by, um, uh, by, a, by a bomb, wasn't it? One of the seven, seven bombings. And uh, she found that such a difficult thing. She, in the end, had to, she gave up her, 
she gave, I think she was from Bristol, I think her name was Julie Nicholson, and she, she felt that she had to give up the church because forgiveness was, was impossible for her. How did that specifically work with you? Right, I've thought about this a lot and I've had to talk about it quite a lot, and I think that forgiveness is a gift, um, a gift from God. I don't think that we necessarily have the power to forgive. If somebody did something hideous to one of my good friends or one of my animals, I don't think I would forgive them. But then if you don't forgive, you destroy yourself. I was very, very angry with one of the women that I worked for when I was at the hospice, and I can remember getting in the car, and the my dislike and anger of her was consuming me and I got in the car and I drove for six hours up to North Wales to St Bino's which is a big Jesuit house to talk to the man who counselled me about these things and I prayed for the ability to forgive and eventually it came and people always ask me if I was able to forgive the people who tortured me and I had no trouble over that because they were just poor, more, not morons, I guess, but poor, not terribly bright people who'd been made to do it by the military, um, who'd been made to do it by the generals in Chile, who'd been made to do it by the politicians in New York or whatever, Washington. So if you can't forgive the man who raped your daughter or the person who killed, ran over your son. Pray for forgiveness because it will otherwise destroy you. I'm sure that's right. And I don't think I've ever been so severely tested in terms of uh, forgiving someone for something, except perhaps forgiving God for sending me Arthur. But then Arthur has also been a wonderful gift. Um, I think sometimes though I reflect on the other side we assume it's hard to forgive and we forget how hard it is to be forgiven because if you have done something really serious you've got to start by admitting you've done it and facing up to the depth of the reality of what you've done and most of us immediately turn to make excuses. And I often think that we talk a bit too glibly in churches about being forgiven. Thank you. I'd, I'd like to just ask you if you'd want to take a couple of minutes each just to round off this remarkable session with just a few thoughts that um, we might take away from your wisdom on the question of suffering. Is there anything that you want to say that you feel you haven't? And... Yes, I, the, what I have been dying to say all evening in a sense is shit happens. The world in which we live is a fragile creation. We are fragile creations. The body, genes mutate. People get cancer. 
people lose their concentration when they're driving and they run over people. It's a world in which bad things happen. And what we have to do always is to try to work out whether it's just one of those shit happening things or whether it's actually there's a cause like the Amazon rainforest, the butterfly flapping its wings. And I think it behoves us to learn. One of the most important lessons for me in the last few years has been learning a bit about ecology because I never thought that was a God thing. But the, the way we treat the planet is as much a God thing as the way we treat each other and the way we treat the animals. I mean, that woman who threw the cat in the bin, I would be very hard pushed to forget her, just forget to forgive her. Somehow, in a, in a sense, cruelty to handicapped people, to demented people and to animals is much harder to forgive than other things. But the thing about God, I, I don't know why I believe in God, except that I somehow know her, him, and I know her, him, because I keep company because I spend quite a lot of time in silence. And I would say to you, spend some time in silence and let your mind be still. I do it at the moment just drinking a cup of tea in the morning and scratching the dog's back, as good as saying the rosary. Um, just being, and the more you be, the more you are, the more you can be open to the divine. Francis. I think uh, what I'd like to finish off with is something along these lines. Um, somehow our society is built on a very deep-seated individualism and a sense of being autonomous, able to make our own destiny, make our own choices, um, as individuals. And I think one of the deepest things that comes out of the kind of experience in my family, but also the experience of uh, the large communities which Jean Vanier founded, is that actually we are um, dependent on one another, that there is a kind of mutuality. You see, one of the greatest things I think Jean Vanier has seen is that you don't go to be an assistant in a large community um, and find that you can continue with the idea that you're doing something good and charitable and doing good things to people who are in need. You very quickly discover that they are doing things for you. There is a mutuality involved and that, that we are all somehow in the same boat. I mean, here was I with a, a high-level job in a university under enormous stress and pressure and I would go home and I would put Arthur to bed 
and he would smile and he would chuckle and we'd have fun together and I would discover that he ministered to me. And I think this is something we all desperately need to rediscover, that we belong to one another, we're dependent on one another, we need each other. And strangely enough, it is in that ordinary being together that the presence of God is found and the fruits of the Spirit. Well, that's been a a quite remarkable session, I think. Um, Before I um, finally uh, thank our two speakers, can I just give some short housekeeping notices? A bit prosaic for the end, I'm sorry about that. There is a retiring collection, as I said before, I'd like to remind you, which is for the Medical Foundation for the Victims of Torture. Um, Next week, uh, we have, our subject is love, and Oliver James and Lucy Winkett are going to be talking about love, which I think should be, again, a remarkable session. Um, On Sunday evening at 6 o'clock, we will have a service that goes with accompanies this series and suffering will be our theme. Uh, Thank you very much indeed for coming. Uh, Thank you very much indeed to Francis Young and to Sheila Casti. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you ever so much. Thank you.